0: Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased.
1: This past week, Kathleen Sebelius, the United States Secretary of Health and Human Services has been on the hot seat. She has been grilled in congressional hearings for, in her words, the miserably frustrating experience that people are having with electronic enrollment in Obamacare. The price tag for the dysfunctional website alone is one hundred seventy-five million dollars and counting. The secretary testified last Tuesday, I apologize. Hold me accountable for the debacle. I am responsible for the failure. Now it's probably safe to say that none of us have ever failed at anything that would approximate this, to spend nearly two hundred million dollars and have little or nothing to show for it, ouch, ouch. And then to have this failure of public trust played out day after day on television and in the newspapers, that would just be unimaginable. surely. Surely she had to know how important this initiative is to the financial and physical health of millions of people. Surely she had to know the importance of her task. But folks, I have to tell you that I stand before you today with an even more acute fear of failure because if I fail in my responsibility today, it could mean that people I care about may not hear the clear call of God. If I fail today, someone may miss Jesus. If I fail today, someone may miss taking hold of life that is truly life. If I fail today, someone may miss heaven. Now I'm often haunted by the seriousness of the task of preaching, of speaking to people for God from His Word. But the stakes seem even higher when I am preaching a salvation message, and for me, the loss of millions of dollars is nothing compared to the loss of a single soul. So my approach today in my task is to help you hear the clear call of God. And I approach this task with deep fear, but a deeper resolve that I will not fail. I never want to have to apologize to anyone for failure to impress the reality of God's call. Now, the topics today and next weekend say it all. We are called, that's today, and we are chosen, that's next weekend. And if and when you are convinced that these two statements are true, it is life-changing So will you take God's Word for it today if we seek to first understand and then to respond to God's call? First, understanding God's call. What are the most important things that I could say to you this morning to clarify God's call from God's Word? Well, I think the first thing I would want to say is that it is for everyone, no exceptions. Acts chapter 2 verse 36, therefore... Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call." The Jews who had called for Jesus' blood were now confronted through Peter's courageous message about what they had done. They had, with the help of wicked men, put Jesus to death by nailing Him on a cross. Three thousand responded with a desperate heart cry of remorse. What shall we do? And we identify with them because we know that we all have sinned, and we know that it was not so much the Jews or the Romans, but it was... It was our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. The Bible says that He bore everyone's sin in His body on the tree. 1 Corinthians one twenty four says, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles... Now, that's everyone, because you're either a Jew or a non-Jew. That's the population of the planet. Both Jews and Gentiles. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God's. So I want to ask you to personalize his call on your life today. So easy to come to church, to see other people respond, and to kind of be checked out about our own need to answer God's call. So easy to filter out the urgency of the call of God on our lives. It's easy to substitute occasional worship attendance for personal commitment. Instead, we need to embrace reality and be teachable and be broken and be saved like the Jews when they heard Peter's message. The call of God is for everyone. Without exception. Well, it's also a heavenly calling. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which, here it is, God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The life you'll live as a Christ follower is second to none. It is a superlative life. You cannot improve on it. It'll bring out the best in you. It will bring out the highest good in you. You'll no longer have a past to be ashamed of or a past that you have to apologize for. You can forget it because God has. You have a present that is, that is infused with purpose and you have a future illumined by hope. As we see in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Since we share together this heavenly calling, this eternal calling, as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, in the family of God, we encourage each other to fix our thoughts on Jesus. We help one another keep an eternal perspective. Because we're not living for this life only. We are pressing on toward the prize. It's a heavenly calling. It's also a holy calling, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what it says. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Okay, now this is going to be a tall order. I need to convince you that this call to a holy life is not going to make you some kind of a weirdo, that a holy life is actually desirable and it is fulfilling long-term. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Those are our choices. Those are the paths, the broad way that leads to destruction, life of impurity or the narrow way that leads to life, a holy life. And we live in a generation that does not elevate holiness as very admirable. Our iconic personalities today tend to be political power brokers and exhibitionist sex symbols and slick financial deal-doers and fame-chasing entertainers and steroid-saturated professional athletes, but God's purpose and God's grace is to make us good and to be like Him in His Holiness. And when we come to the end of ourselves, voted out or retired from our political career, no longer photogenic, living on a fixed income, voice raspy and wavering, body weak and infirm, when we're looking back on our life from a wheelchair or a rocking chair, from a sickbed or a deathbed, what will matter most then? Looking back on life, that's when you will know what really matters. And in such moments, the holy life will look very different. There's a reason why one in three under age 30 are nuns, but only one in ten, 65 and older, are nuns. Holiness looks so much more appealing as we near the finish line in life. But here's the thing. We don't know where the finish line is. Yesterday morning, I stood in the University Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, beside the bed of Crossroads guy, Jim Petty. Night before last, he got on his motorcycle to take a fall evening ride through the beautiful foliage around in Indiana. His motorcycle hit a wet patch in the highway. There were leaves on the highway. The bike slid out from under him, and he is fighting for his life in the university hospital in Louisville. I stood beside his bed. I've never seen anyone in worse shape, and I held his wife's hand as we prayed for God to raise him up. And we pray that he will be raised up, but he's hanging by a thread. Now if you would ask Jim, before he mounted his motorcycle, to take that ride through the beautiful fall evening, the foliage, the hills, he would never have imagined where he would be this morning. So we can't wait. We cannot wait to embrace the call to a holy life because we don't know where the finish line is. It's also a high calling. It's a high calling. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. To live a life worthy of the calling that we've received from the Lord, it will mean that we submit to being humble, not arrogant, not boastful, not prideful, not narcissistic. It will mean being gentle, not judgmental, not legalistic, not harsh. It will mean that we become patient, not driven not caustic, not temperamental, not verbally abusive. It'll mean being accepting of all kinds of people, not intolerant, not unfriendly, not critical. So understand, God's call is to everyone without exception. It is a heavenly calling. It is a holy calling. It is a high calling. That's the call. And we need to understand it. But we've got to move from understanding the call. we got to move from our mind to the will. we got to respond to God's call. And responding to God's call is not intellectual. Now, it starts with a change in our thinking, new understanding, new way of looking at the Lord, new way of looking at life. But once you understand that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross in your place for your sins, once you personalize that, once you understand that because of His sacrifice you're forgiven, once you understand that you have a purposeful life on earth and the promise of eternal life one day in heaven, once your heart is humbled by His love and grace, you will want to respond. In Acts chapter two, Peter stood in front of the very people who' crucified Jesus, revealed the truth to them about him. They had violently resisted the Lord until a resurrection happened. and then the miracle of Pentecost was manifested with a mighty rushing wind and visible tongues of fire over the heads of the apostles and the people from every nation under heaven miraculously hearing the message in their own language. And it was then that they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? Peter did not reply. He did not say, there's nothing you can do. Salvation is all up to God. He didn't say that. He didn't say, bow your head and pray this simple prayer. He did not say, memorize the genealogy of Jesus. Peter replied in Acts 2, 38 and verse 41, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And those who accepted His message were baptized. Now one part of Peter's answer here is not questioned or debated, the command to repent. That's universally understood to be indispensable, being genuinely sorry for past sins, being committed to pursue a God-honoring life. That's a pivotal moment in the process of conversion. It is the critical change in direction. It is the spiritual about-face, but for whatever reason, baptism is not afforded equal consideration. For the first 1,500 years of church history, the significance of baptism was never questioned. The apostles and the early church fathers believed and practiced that believer's baptism was a necessary response to God's grace. It was not merely a symbol disconnected from salvation. What had been a unanimous consensus for a millennium and a half was changed primarily by the efforts of one man, a Swiss theologian named Ulrich Zwingli. Here's what he said I quote In this matter of baptism, if I may be pardoned for saying it, I can only conclude that all have been in error from the time of the apostles. All the doctors, have ascribed a power to the water that it does not have, and the apostles did not teach. First Zwingli, then later a man by the name of R. C. Ryle changed the purpose of baptism to an act that was merely symbolic. Why? Well, they believed that if salvation required or was affected by baptism... It negated the sovereignty of God. Sadly, they failed to realize that since baptism is instituted by God, it could not possibly negate His sovereignty. Those who have adopted Zwingli's teaching have often accused those who believe that baptism is an expression of faith, it is a necessary response to grace of teaching a works salvation. They define faith as mental assent, and anything other than mental assent is considered to be a work. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes about the obedience that comes from faith. Faith is always something we both declare and demonstrate. If you go to Hebrews Chapter 11, the faith chapter, you will read these words. By faith, Abel. By faith, Noah. By faith, Moses. By faith, Joseph. The words by faith are always followed by an action verb. And besides, isn't that what the crowd ask on the day of Pentecost? They asked, what shall we do? Faith always calls for obedient action on our part. And if we reject anything that has the appearance of a work, then repentance must also be rejected as necessary because that is clearly something we do. Actually, baptism is less of a work because it's not something you do, but rather it is something that is done to you. It is passive. The baptized person is actually the receiver of the action, receiver of the work. Where do we get the idea that faith does not include obedience faith must be practiced to be real maybe the clearest evidence to support the essential nature of baptism comes from an examination of two verses Matthew chapter 26 verse 28 and the verse that we've already read Acts 2:38 now Matthew 26:28 Jesus instituted the Lord's supper with these words this "...is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, "...repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins." Now, from a linguistic perspective, the object of both of those verses is identical. The object of both verses is the forgiveness of sins. And the subject that makes forgiveness a reality is His blood, the blood of Jesus, connected with our baptism. Our salvation is a covenant relationship which Jesus initiated but to which we must respond. He extended His grace in shedding His blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We demonstrate our faith by repentance and submission in Christian baptism, and baptism is a wonderful, refreshing experience of spiritual cleansing. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul teaches that baptism is not some outward ceremonial cleansing. It is an inward cleansing by trusting in Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and arose from the dead, and to be baptized without trusting in Christ. You just go down a dry center and come up a wet center, and the only thing that changes is your clothes. The waters of baptism provide this wonderful sense of cleansing and renewal. We begin with a clean slate, we have a new start, we experience a new birth. Ananias said to Saul of Tar- Tarsus, Saul, the ruthless persecutor and intimidator of Christians, now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Someone's sure to say, well, you know, the Bible says, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Paul had called on the name of the Lord on the Damascus road when he fell to the ground and he said, What shall I do, Lord? There's, there's that question again. What shall I do, Lord? Clearly implied is some kind of action. And the Lord said, Get up and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. And he was in a state of repentance and he was in a state of submission for days. He had called on the name of of the Lord." He had invited Jesus Christ into his heart, but he was further instructed not to delay, but to be baptized. And we all need to realize there's a sense of urgency about baptism. It's present in every one of the detailed conversion accounts in the book of Acts, and you're going to notice that this message is loaded with Bible. Acts chapter 2 verse 41 on Pentecost. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That day. There was an urgency about it. It wasn't something they postponed. It was something they did immediately. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the Ethiopians said... Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Then both Philip and the Ethiopian went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. This was in the course of maybe just a few minutes, maybe a few hours at most. Philip climbed up in the chariot with the Ethiopian, who was reading from the book of Isaiah. And he was reading about Jesus, but he didn't understand who it was. He needed someone to teach him. Philip taught him, and he evidently told him something about responding to God's grace in Christ because the Ethiopian looked out at the Mediterranean Sea and said, Well, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? And they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. So it happened in the span of a few minutes, maybe a couple of hours. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. This is when Saul was converted. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. You remember, he was struck blind on the Damascus Road. Something like scales fell from his eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. Acts chapter 10, verse 47. Peter went to the household of a man named Cornelius, a guy just like any one of us with a family. He's a godly man, but he needed to be taught about Jesus. Peter was divinely led to go to the household of Cornelius, And in Acts 10, 47, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. So we ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It happened in the span of just a few minutes. They went from not really knowing about Jesus at all. They learned about Him. They believed on Him. They submitted to baptism. Chapter 16, verse 14, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home again in the span of a very short time. Acts 16.33, Paul and Silas got their feet clamped in stocks. They've been imprisoned. They're singing. An earthquake shakes the prison. Their bonds are loose. They could have run away. They didn't do it. The Philippian jailer was about to run himself through, thinking that the prisoners had all escaped. They said, don't hurt yourself. We're all here a man came and fell down in front of him and said, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, there it is. What must I do to be saved? At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, then immediately he and all his household were baptized. These are the detailed conversion accounts in the book of Acts. All of them mention baptism. All of them mention the urgency of it, the immediacy of it. Several years ago, well-known radio commentator, Paul Harvey, was asked to write a personal testimony for Guidepost magazine And he chose to tell about his own baptism. In the article, Paul Harvey told how he had received almost every possible award in broadcasting, yet he still felt incomplete. He still felt something was missing inside. One summer while he was on vacation, Harvey and his wife decided to go to church. It wasn't something they always did. They ended up going to a worship service in a tiny church in Cave Creek, Arizona. There were only about a dozen people present. Harvey said there was a good spirit in the place, and for some reason, as he sat in church that day, he began thinking about John three sixteen. He said he liked the everlasting life part of that verse, and he believed in Jesus, but he had never publicly acknowledged it or been baptized. And he said, I remember one night praying in a hotel room, asking Jesus to come into my heart, but I always felt that there was something else I was missing. When the preacher got up, He announced that his sermon was going to be about baptism, and Paul Harvey said, I yawned, but as as he started talking about it, I found myself interested. He talked about how it symbolized surrender to Jesus Christ. He insisted that there was nothing magic in the water, but that a cleansing took place inside when you yielded yourself completely to Jesus. Paul Harvey said he surprised even himself when he stood up and walked to the front as the invitation was offered. I imagine he really surprised the preacher of that little church in Cave Creek, Arizona. Then he described what happened. He said, as I descended into the depths and rose again, I knew something life-changing had happened. The change this simple act made in my life was so immense as to be indescribable. Since totally yielding to him in baptism, my heart can't stop singing... Also, perhaps because baptism is such a public act and because one's dignity gets as drenched as one's body, I discovered I had a new unself consciousness in talking about my faith. Paul Harvey discovered what baptism is all about. It's about surrendering. Here's a story a little closer to home, one of our own. Mike Silen. Watch the video and then listen to a song.
2: I moved out of my mom and dad's house when I turned 18 with money I earned selling weed. I smoked weed almost daily and ran around doing anything I could to try to avoid family. I had failed relationship after failed relationship. It got to the point where I had to call the police in order to even try to pick up my children, only to go home alone. Quitting weed was a losing battle because every time I attempted to quit, I couldn't eat. I thought I had to smoke to eat. In April 2013, my dad passed away, and shortly after I heard a voice in my head. First, I just thought it was grieving, but then I heard it again and realized I needed a change because the path I was taking wasn't working. In, In my heart, I knew what I had to do. I started going to church every week. I read my Bible every day. I also began talking to my brother Mark about Jesus and the Bible readings. Next thing I knew, I was meeting wonderful people who shared with me how to live out God's plan. I started praying, got baptized, and telling people in my circle everything I was learning about my Bible readings. I prayed about my family, work, and especially that God would help me quit smoking weed. In less than one week, only one week, I quit smoking cold turkey. I haven't smoked marijuana since or even thought about it. I am now closer to my family, seeing my brother and my mother a couple times a week rather than a couple times a year. I spent more quality time with my children. I can only say to everyone here don't wait and make the same mistakes that I did. I only wish I would have made this choice a lot earlier. I apologize to everyone I've hurt, especially my family. Jesus is the only way. God bless everyone here today. My name is Mike, and I choose Christ.
1: that this is a defining moment in all of our lives. The yes or no answer will determine the life we live on Earth and whether we have hope in the greater life to come. And we thank you for your clear call through Jesus, to our own hearts. And we thank you for everything else around us in this life that reminds us that you are calling us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I, I want to ask you as clearly and as compellingly as I can. If you have heard God's call, if you have heard God's call, whether it was when you were a child or maybe just from time to time throughout your life, or maybe, maybe you came into this service today and you have clearly heard God's call on your life, I want to challenge you to do one of two things. Number one, to come today, right now, be obedient to Him in baptism. You may have been sprinkled as an infant. That wasn't your decision. That was someone else's decision. The Bible only teaches believers baptism baptism accompanied by repentance that can only be done volitionally that can only be done by you as a matter of your own surrender of your own will so we challenge you today to come or number two to come today right now and to take a towel from the front you wondered what these towels were up here on the platform we want you to come and get one of these towels today and and take it home with you and to put it someplace where you'll see it this week and to prepare your heart, prepare yourself and come prepared next weekend on baptism weekend to get that towel wet and to be obedient to the Lord in baptism. We have planned and we have prayed and we have prepared and God's call is being extended today You'll be convinced next week that you're also chosen. These are lofty truths. These are life-changing truths. And we invite you to conform your life to this revelation from God's Word today, either coming to Christ today or coming and picking up one of these towels and come back next week to be buried with Him in baptism and raised to walk into new life. As many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Prepare yourself this week. Take a towel. Take it home. Prepare yourself. Come back next week. Let's do this thing.